Well, for those of you uh, who don't know me, uh, I thought I'd just introduce myself uh, by saying that uh, when I was 16 years old, I had lots of little ambitions, but really and truly, they all fed into one mega ambition. More than anything else, I wanted to be cool. I wanted people to look at me and think, oh, he's cool. That was my whole goal in life. And by the summer of 1984, I believed that I'd finally become cool for one very good reason. I had some completely white leather shoes <laughs> that were identical to those worn by that sensational pop duo, Wham! Now, could you just please help me by, could you just raise your hand if you remember Wham? Oh my goodness, it's like a Wham! church. That was amazing. <laughs> There's almost every hand in the building went up. And anyway, I, I, that was really encouraging for me. Um, I also had on these light blue trousers, which again were identical to those worn by Andrew Ridgely and George Michael in the video to the smash hit song, Club Tropicana. Anyway, at this point in my life, I discovered another band called The Smiths. Now, The Smiths had a lead singer called Morrissey. Now, same thing. Do any of you here remember Morrissey? Okay, the same people. Um, <laughs> well, well, Morrissey, he had this hairstyle uh, that was called a flat top. Now, I know this is going to be difficult for you to imagine looking at me now, but in the 1980s, I had hair. In fact, I had so much hair in the 1980s, I could even choose a style. I had options. Those were the days. And uh, Anyway, I chose to gel my hair up into a flat-top style in honor of my hero, Morrissey. And I had on this uh, Smith's T-shirt thing and this sort of World War I-style trench coat that uh, he used to wear uh, all the year round. I, you had to, I, even now, I don't know why we had to wear the trench coat. But I didn't have the full outfit because I still had on my light blue trousers and my completely white leather shoes. So if you had seen me in the summer of 1984 down the town center hanging out with my mates, I was basically Smiths from the waist up and Wham from the waist down. And as I was in this kind of cultural confusion in between one band and another, hanging around, and we used to hang out on a Friday night, not right outside McDonald's, so that it looked sad, but slightly to one side, near, near, near McDonald's, but not right outside. And there's about 20 of us one Friday night hanging around uh, down the town centre. And there was this new girl in our clique. Um, and, and her name was Caroline Payne. And during a kind of a pause in conversation, she says out loud to all 20 of us, she says, Oh, she says, how would you all like to come with me to my church on Sunday evening? And there was a silence, uh, just like there was then. Um, <laughs> Because we were all thinking, church, what kind of church would you possibly want to go to? You see, none of us, none of us went to church. None of us had ever met anyone our age who went to church. And so out of sheer curiosity, we all said yes. <laughs> and so all 20 of us turned up that Sunday for the 6.30 evening service at her church, which was Wimbledon Baptist Church, which is the New Frontiers Church in Wimbledon. And that was an amazing uh, first insight. I, I discovered that there was such a thing as evangelical Christianity. And uh, I went back to this church a number of times. And to make a very, very long story short, nine months later, on the 14th of April, 1985, I gave my life to Christ. And uh, the following morning, um, I was in the lower sixth form at school at the time. I just started telling some of my friends about what had happened to me the night before and how I'd become a Christian. And um, I started to pray for particular people at school. So I, I kind of prayed in the morning. I knelt by my bed and sort of prayed. I'd say, dear God, um, when I'm in the lunch queue today, may... And then I'd just name someone at random from school. Uh, may Nick Pimlot come and stand next to me in the queue. And may we have a conversation about you, Lord Jesus. Amen. And, you know, I'd never done the praying thing before, so I was just in the lunch queue at school. School's getting, the queue's getting shorter and shorter and shorter. Obviously, there's hundreds of students, no Nick Pimlock, you know, why should he be here? And then suddenly, at the last minute, <gasps> he appears, standing right next to me. I think, oh, like in the prayer. <laughs> and so we have the conversation. I think, oh, it worked. 
And so maybe two days later, I pray for Anthony Van Der Steen, and then I talk to him that day, you know, just like in the prayer. And then I pray for Andy De Groot, and it was like, oh, we're talking just like in the prayer. And basically, I prayed this prayer two or three times a week for two years. Every time I prayed this prayer, it worked. And this is absolutely fantastic. So I was, I was really excited, and some of the students at the school started to become Christians, and then the teachers found out about what was happening, and they started to give us uh, house assemblies and whole school assemblies. And then towards the end, it got really out of hand. I mean, crazy things happened. Like, I remember one period of A-level history, when we're supposed to be studying Tudors and Stuarts, and the head of the history department starts the double lesson of A-level history by saying, Adrian, why don't you tell us all today about speaking in tongues? We're supposed to be doing Tudors and Stuarts, sir. I mean, as far as I know, they didn't speak in tongues. But anyway, the high point of my school career was just before we got our A-level results in the sixth form common room when my friend James Lewison accused Julian McCorkadale of only becoming a Christian because it was trendy. And I thought, yes, yes. We have completely reversed the culture. Oh, you're just doing what everyone else is doing. You're just becoming a Christian because everyone's becoming a Christian. And I thought, yes. You know, I look back on all of that now. And uh, over the last 24 years, 25 years, I've continued to try and share Christ with people. And I've seen some people come to faith in Christ. But as I look back on my life, I just think particularly about one person. Because... Humanly speaking, the reason why I am in Christ today, humanly speaking, the reason why I'm here this morning, humanly speaking, the reason why you and I have met and we're just getting to know each other here and talking to each other is because one 15-year-old girl on a Friday night outside McDonald's said to 15 or 20 or so of her friends, how would you all like to come with me to my church on Sunday evening? And I look back on that now and I think, all Caroline Payne really did was she just communicated the gospel in her world. And that is what I've been asked to talk to you guys about this morning. How you and I can communicate the gospel day by day, month by month, year by year. So let's start uh, by going on another journey. Come with me, if you will, to the sweltering summer of 1934. Because there, in Charlotte, North Carolina, an evangelist rejoicing in the name of Dr. Mordecai Ham is preaching the gospel every night in a tin hut with sawdust as a carpet. And for a whole month, a group of teenagers have been inviting a 16-year-old who loves baseball to come to these meetings. But for a whole month, the 16-year-old who loves baseball has been saying no, telling anybody who asks that he wants nothing to do with such nonsense. Folks, it was at this moment that Albert McMakin made his mark upon world history. You see, Albert had already built up a relationship, a friendship with this teenager as the two of them worked alongside each other on Albert's dad's farm where, when Albert's dad grew prize-winning tomatoes. Albert asked the teenager, incidentally, as I tell the story, would you like me to attempt the Carolinan accent? Okay, seeing as you forced me, I will. Um, Albert asked the teenager, why don't you come out and hear a fighting preacher? Or, or something like that. I, I won't carry on because I, I tend to get a bit carried away. Um, the teenager replied, is he a fighter? I like a fighter. Then Albert threw in the added incentive that if the teenager agreed to come, he would let the teenager drive the McMakin family vegetable truck to the meeting. Folks, the offer of the truck swung it. The teenager said yes, and he drove them at making family vegetable truck to the meeting. And he sat at the back, and he was totally captivated by the evangelist's message. And he kept coming back to these meetings every night for a month, until after a month of sitting through these 
evangelistic meetings, he finally responded to the preacher's appeal for salvation. He was the very last of 400 people who went to the front to receive Christ that night. A local tailor called J.D. Previtt came alongside him and prayed with him to become a Christian. Folks, that teenager is still alive. He is now 92 years old. But over the past 65 years, he has probably led more people to Christ than anyone who has ever lived. And he's probably spoken to more people face-to-face about Jesus than anyone has ever spoken to anyone about anything. And his name is Dr. Billy Graham. Folks, few people on earth will have ever heard the name of Albert McMakin. But in heaven, Albert is going to look out upon millions of people who found Christ through Billy Graham. And Albert McMakin is going to reflect forever on the results of one moment of boldness when he said to a 16-year-old farm boy who loves baseball, why don't you come out and hear our fighting preacher? Folks, all Albert McMakin did was he communicated the gospel in his world, which was the tomato-growing world of North Carolina. But that enabled Billy Graham to communicate the gospel to the whole world. (coughs) Folks, not every single one of us here this morning is going to be a Billy Graham. But every single one of us can genuinely be an Albert McMakin. And all Albert McMakin did was he just communicated the gospel in his world. And when we hear stories like that, and we can see the eternal significance of what Albert did, it's quite an exciting kind of a feeling. It's quite an exciting thought. And then when we turn to the New Testament, we read our Bibles, we find, yeah, this sharing our faith with others, it is something that in the Bible we as Christians are called to do. So here's my question. If, at least in theory, I'm excited by this idea, I mean, helping people escape hell, helping people get to heaven, that at least seems like a pretty exhilarating idea, at least in theory. If I think that, and when I read the Bible, I find that we as Christians are called to do this, here's my question, why don't I do more of it? Why are so many of us Christians reluctant to communicate the gospel in our world? Well, I think part of the answer has to do with our journey. Because it seems to me that when it comes to this particular thing of evangelism or giving away our faith or sharing Christ, many Christians live in what I call the valley of disappointment. Now, let me see if I can explain to you what I mean. Have a look at this um, mountain range. Now, let's just imagine that your Christian life starts over here at the right-hand side of the screen as you look and I mean, I don't know how you became a Christian, but let's just say, because I don't know you, let's say that you were 14 years old, and this may not be true of you, but let's just go with it, and let's say that you uh, had a Christian family, and let's say that you went away on a, a festival or a Bible week or, I don't know, a scripture union mission or... Anyway, that summer, your parents' faith becomes yours, your faith comes alive, you uh, begin a relationship with God, it's, it's basically all happening, and you go back to school that September, do you remember this? And for the first time, you genuinely wanted to share the good news with this best friend you'd had all the way through primary school, all the way through secondary school, and of course, they, they noticed, you know, all of a sudden, God and Jesus is, is real, and you're alive with this whole thing, and they ask you all about it, and you start to climb what I call the hill of expectation, You invite your friend from school along to the church youth group. They actually come. You think, oh, I can see that they're going to become a Christian. They're coming along on a Friday night. And let's just ask this question. Where is that person today? Are they in church going for God? Well, no. It kind of all blew over and their interest kind of waned and Or maybe they did prayer prayer, but then it all kind of fizzled out, and it was all a bit perplexing and disappointing. And So without realizing it, we kind of slid down into a little trough of disappointment. Can you see it there? But because you're a good Christian, you didn't stay there for long. No! Throw your story on a few years. 
Now, maybe you've just arrived to become a student here in Sheffield, or maybe you're starting your first job here in Sheffield, or there's a new start, a blank piece of paper, maybe a new job, and you make a friend. This person is genuinely interested in the Christian faith. They raise the subject with you. This is so exciting. They ask you questions. You invite them to evangelistic events. They actually come. And so now you start to climb what I call the mountain of expectation. Because you're thinking, well, I've been a Christian now for four years. I've been a Christian now for eight years. Or I've been a Christian now for 13 years. Or I've been a Christian now for 20 years. I've never actually led one of my friends to Christ. But now I can see I'm finally going to break my duck. And at the very top of the mountain of expectation, your friend is on Alpha. <laughs> but what happened next? Did they actually go on the Alpha Holy Spirit day away? Oh, no, didn't, that didn't work out. And Did they actually finish the Alpha course? No, they missed the end of the course and... They all kind of blew over, or they moved away, or you moved away. And the truth is, looking back, without ever really sort of consciously making a decision, the truth is probably looking back, we kind of slid down into what I call the valley of disappointment. And the significant thing about the valley of disappointment is that so many Christians live there. And what happens in the valley of disappointment is crucial. Because in the valley of disappointment... We Christians decide what our gifting is. Because what happens in the Valley of Disappointment is we look back on our kind of evangelistic career and we think, hmm, I've been a Christian now for three years, eight years, whatever it is, and I have got absolutely nothing to show for my evangelistic efforts. Nobody who I've tried to witness to has ever become a Christian, but... We look at all these other things which are equally, equally biblical. These things are just as much in the Bible as the evangelism thing, but the difference is that in all these other things within the life of the church, I do see at least some definable difference. I can see I'm doing something. At least somebody says, do you want to be on the rotor? Or somebody says, thank you. You know, I can see at least I'm making some kind of a difference over here, the whole evangelism thing, that all seemed to come to absolutely nothing. I can't see any difference I've made there. But over here, this must be where my gifting is. And so, I just want to ask this question. What was it that we so wanted to happen at the very top of the mountain of expectation that when it didn't happen, it caused us to get disappointed? Well, I think probably we all know the answer. At the end of the day, our friend, our friend didn't actually become a Christian or if they did pray a prayer it all kind of fizzled out and it all amounted to nothing and that's why we got disappointed but I just want to put it to you this morning if I may that in the four gospels in the new testament when we read Jesus teaching on evangelism Jesus teaches us that there's more to success in evangelism than simply narrowly people becoming Christians now before we respond to that statement, just have a look at this next slide. I want to suggest to you that everybody in Sheffield, everybody in Britain is somewhere on this scale. There's somewhere between being at the bottom of the scale, having no awareness of God, no contact with Christians, and probably the vast majority of people here this morning, those of us who perhaps have already decided to give our lives to Christ, we've become a Christian. And I just want to put it to you that actually... What success in evangelism really is, according to Jesus, is helping people from whatever point they are out of the scale to come to see through their encounter with us that the church and the gospel message of Jesus Christ is increasingly relevant to them. So you move house and your next door neighbors at point one on the scale. Three years later, they move away to Bradford and they're at point two on the scale. That is success in evangelism. You work for three years in an office. The bloke next to you in the cubicle next to you, he's at point five on the scale. Three years later, you move away. And the fact is that when you leave, he's at point six. That is success in evangelism. Folks, evangelism, according to Jesus, is a process. And if we come to believe that, it could be life-changing for us in our Christian life. 
Now, how do we know that evangelism is a process? Answer, because Jesus told us so. In fact, Jesus taught that evangelism is a process on many different occasions in the Gospels. I'm just going to choose one which is the most famous, the most celebrated, the most preached on example of Jesus, the master evangelist at work. And it's the famous story of Jesus in John chapter 4, where he encounters the woman at the well. So, Um, If you have a Bible, you'd be very welcome to turn to John chapter 4. If not, have no fear. The words will appear on the screen. But if you're not familiar with this story, let me just tell you that Jesus is on a journey from the south of the country to the north of the country. And he chooses to go through this place called Sychar, which is in the West Bank. it It was kind of out of his way. He goes through Samaria. And he stops off. At this place called Sychar, there's a Samaritan woman at the well. And Jesus strikes up a conversation with the woman by asking her for a drink of water. And folks, every time I read this story, I am amazed by the speed of Jesus' progress. Because Jesus goes from, can I have a drink of water, please? And within the space of 30 verses... The whole town is coming out to hear the gospel. And I think, how do you do that? How do you walk into a newsagent in Sheffield, you walk up to the counter and say, can I have a bottle of water, please? And within half an hour, the whole city of Sheffield is marching down the street saying, what must I do to be saved? How do you do that? And so, I go to W.H. Smith and I buy myself some highlighter pens. And I've got yellow for one theme, I've got green for another theme, I've got pink, I've got red, and I go through John chapter 4 looking for the key. What is the key? How do you do that? Oh, Jesus, the master evangelist. And of course, when you do study John 4, the answer doesn't half rather jump off the page. Because during the conversation, as you may know, Jesus has never ever met this woman ever before. During the conversation, he says to this woman, um, actually, you're right about that because you've had five husbands and the man who you're now living with isn't your husband. How does he know that? How do you meet a total stranger and you can just know that, just looking at me, how do you do that? And so I always imagine that at the end of John chapter 4, as the guys are kind of debriefing on the road as they leave Sychar about how it was that You know, they had such an amazing success. I always imagine that the conversation should go something like this. And let me just explain that. I picture everything in the Gospels through the lens of Franco Zeffirelli's 1977 TV miniseries, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, if you've never seen Jesus of Nazareth, let me just explain. that In Jesus of Nazareth, all the conversations that Jesus has with the disciples are over the shoulder. So Jesus walks along the road, and the disciples follow, like in a triangle formation, and Jesus talks over the shoulder. That's, that, the whole thing is all, all 14 hours are like this. So I always imagine the conversation in, in John 4 should go something like this. Jesus says, uh, guys, how come it was that we hit such a home run at Sychar? You know, why do you think it went so well at Sychar today? And I always think that maybe Peter should say, or one of the disciples should say, oh, well... Uh, Rabbi, you, you, you had one of your words of knowledge. And Jesus says, uh, yes, I think you'll find uh, Peter is rather a good one. <laughs> but that isn't what he says. No, when you read it in your actual Bible, in verse 37, Jesus, reflecting on the whole episode, says, Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work. And you've reaped the benefits of their labor. Why does he say that? I think he says that. Because in the conversation that Jesus has just had with this woman, this woman's just said something. That in all my 25 years of trying to share the good news with people, no non-Christian has ever said anything even approaching what this woman says when she says to Jesus... I know that the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Folks, here is how I see John chapter 4 in terms of football. Just bear with me for a second. Jesus is like a center forward. And the ball is out on the wing with the winger. 
the winger crosses the ball towards Jesus, and it lands at Jesus' feet near the penalty spot. The opposition goalkeeper has inexplicably left his goal and wandered upfield in a highly irresponsible way, thus presenting Jesus with an open goal. Now have a look at John chapter 4. Jesus arrives at the well. There is already a woman at the well. The woman at the well says, I am waiting for the Messiah to come. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus hears the woman say these words. Jesus thinks to himself, okay, she's waiting for the Messiah to come. I'm the Messiah. So he simply says, I who speak to you am he. Jesus just taps the ball over the goal line into the empty net. Final score, devil nil. Jesus won. An away win in Sikha. <laughs> Folks, this woman is not a point one in the scale. She's past point one. She's past point two. This woman is way up at the top of the scale in nosebleed territory. She already believes the Bible. She already believes the Old Testament's true. She believes in God. She believes in the Messiah. She believes all kinds of Bible God stuff. And so understandably, as the guys debrief on the road as they leave Sikar, Jesus says, isn't it amazing? We've never been here before. We've never met this woman before. But even though she's like the town outcast, she's like the woman who's shunned by everyone in her community, even the town outcast in Sikar believes the Bible. Even she knows a lot of God's stuff. And so it's just like this field that we're walking through. You know, in our agricultural society, Jesus is saying, everybody knows that sometimes one person sows the seed, but somebody else comes along months later and reaps what's sown. That's what's happened here. Jesus is reflecting on the fact the prophets must have sown the word of God into Samaria. The, 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 you know, the seers, the prophets, all through the last hundreds of years. So much so that all we've been able to do is just reap what they've sown. Bruce Milne, in his commentary on this verse, says, As Jesus has just demonstrated in his winning of the Samaritan woman, the time for reaping is at hand. All the generations of preparation within the life of Israel, the witness of the seers, the prophets, the priests and leaders, culminating, according to Bruce Milne's commentary, in the ministry of John the Baptist, have brought the harvest to fruition. When Jesus says, one sows, another reaps, verse 37, he's probably thinking specifically of John the Baptist, who ministered recently in the area, chapter 3, verse 23. So, John the Baptist has just been through. He's done this amazing preaching in Samaria, sown the word of God. Sometime later, Jesus comes through and reaps what John has sown. And so Jesus' reflection, verse 37, is there's been a process here of sowing and reaping. Folks, this is a process that took time. In fact, all the analogies that Jesus used in the Gospels for evangelism, which incidentally are fishing, sowing, farming, and searching for lost items, all of these are processes which take time. It is a process. And if this morning, maybe for the first time in your entire Christian life, if you were cut to come to believe that evangelism in the Bible really is a process, then that means that you've already become a success in evangelism. Hey, if it's a process, that would mean every single one of us could get in the game. If it's really a process, hey, I can get involved in a process. You're just asking me to be part of a process? I can be part of a process. Folks, if it really is a process, then every single one of us can lift off ourselves all the self-imposed pressure that we've been living under. Because if it's a process, hey... I can be part of a process. And what's more, it means you've already been a success in evangelism. What do I mean? If you've taken someone from point one to point two, according to Jesus, that really is success in evangelism. If you've taken someone from point five to point six, that really is success in evangelism. Let's imagine for the sake of the mass that there were 300 of us here this morning. I mean, I don't know how many there are, but let's say there are 300. And let's say that on average, each of us have helped 10 people get closer to faith in Christ than when we first met them. That would mean 300 times 10. That would mean there are 3,000 people living today, many of whom living in Sheffield, who are closer to faith in Christ 
than when we first met them. I would suggest that we could become a little bit encouraged about that. Obviously not too much. <laughs> want to guard against the dangers of emotionalism. But no, we could actually be pleased. You could actually feel pleased. Oh, my goodness, I'm feeling pleased. Yeah, you're feeling pleased because you've been a success in evangelism, according to Jesus, because it is a process. Folks, if we're going to communicate the gospel in our world, we can actually feel like we're a raving success while we're doing it. And that's going to make a huge difference. So let's think about the practicalities of this. And I just want to finish off this morning by mentioning three areas of your life. And this will be a little bit of fun as we finish up. First section, leisure time. Here's a question. Hands up if you don't mind. Could you just put your hand up? How many of you would say you enjoy doing what you enjoy doing? Raise your hand. If you're alive, that should be you. Okay, fantastic. How many of you would say that you feel energy for what you enjoy doing? Yeah, okay, so what do I mean? I mean, look, let's imagine um, you're at your most tired and you're most exhausted. You have finally put the kids to bed. You know they're not really in bed. You can hear them running around in the corridor upstairs, bouncing on their beds, but you're blocking it out. I mean, I speak from experience here. Maybe your life's not like this. I mean, you can hear them bouncing around, but you're blocking it out. You're tired. It's the end of the week. You've finished work. You're watching the television. You're just sitting there with a channel hopper, and you, can, you can't even see what's on the screen. Your eyes are almost closed. You're almost shut. You're just sort of with a channel hopper. I put it to you at that moment when you're at your most tired, you're at your most exhausted, that if the phone rang, and you could answer the phone without moving, you're like, you find the phone down the back of the sofa, and the person on the phone is saying, would you like to come and, and then they mention a particular activity or a particular interest of yours. At the moment they mention this one particular thing, you suddenly feel energy for that one particular thing. Now, I want to ask you, what is your one particular thing? I don't know. For our host, Mark here, who's leading worship just a moment ago, it might be line dancing, for all I know. But you, you might not want to go line dancing with Mark. You might find that embarrassing. But what's your thing? For some people, it'll be upholstery. For somebody else, it'll be learning to speak conversational French. For somebody else, it'll be motorbikes. For somebody else, it'll be rollerblading. For somebody else, it'll be squash. You know, what, what is your one particular thing? And what's fascinating is the person who is sitting next to you right now, their thing would not even vaguely interest you. But your thing, oh, your thing is different. So, what do I mean? Look. There are people, okay, we all know this, there are people, and they are into military history. Yeah? You know how this works? I've got all my soldiers in little rows. And you've got all your soldiers in little rows. And I've got my marble, you've got your marble, and then I roll my marble, and I knock over some of your little men. And then you roll your marble, you knock over some of my little men. And there are other people who look at that and they say, that's sad. <laughs> that's sad because we want to reenact the whole thing in real life. <laughs> because we are the reenactment society. And these people, on a Saturday afternoon, they put on chain mail, they put on armor, they put on helmets, they get in their Volvos and they drive to the countryside to the North York Moors. And they get out, there's got a steam on the moors. No one for 100 miles of where they are. They park up in their Volvos. You get out of your car with your mates, and you get out your sword, and your mate's got his sword, and you say, I am Arthur! And your mate says, oh no. And you kind of slash around with your sword like this. And then after about five minutes, your mate falls over, and he says, oh, whoa, whoa, thou hast slain me thrice woe. <laughs> and then you get up, and you have a kind of a big kind of manly kind of cuddle. You get back in your Volvo. You drive home and say, that was great. Let's do it again next Saturday. That's their thing. What is your thing? The other day, I'm walking along um, the street, just going to the sandwich shop with my friend. And um, he's on his mobile phone. We're just walking to the shop. And as he's on his way to the shop, he... He, he, he's on his mobile phone. He stops the phone call, and this is how he reacts. He goes, yes, 
Yes! Yes! Like this. I'm watching this, and I, I, can't, I can't not comment. So I'm like, you know, well, what's happened? He said, yes, so-and-so has become an Apple Mac user. Yes! Another one. This, just to explain, this is a guy who will only refer to Microsoft as the dark side. That's his thing. What's your thing? Folks, here is the exciting news. There are people who live in Sheffield who are into the same thing that you are into. They might not know Jesus, but they're into the same thing that you're into. And get this, they would actually like to meet you. Because if they met you, you could then talk about whatever it is, upholstery or making furniture or rollerblading or fishing or football or whatever your thing is. Folks, you can communicate the gospel in your world and have the time of your life while you're doing it. This really is potentially exciting. Folks, we in our church um, just encouraged our small group leaders to ask this question to people in their groups, you know, in the small groups, what do you enjoy doing? Here's the typical reaction we got when we started our church. What do you enjoy doing? Is it a trick question? No, it's not a trick question. You know, we, we, you've been coming around my house for the last several months. I've just said, you know, what, what do you enjoy doing? And they said, well, I've never told anybody in church before. And the small group leader says, well, that's okay. We're friends. You can tell me. And the person says, well, it's motor, motor, motorbike, motorbike maintenance. Oh, really? Hey, that's cool because guess what? Look, I'm online right now. Look, come over here to my laptop. Look, let's just type. What's your postcode? Let's type in your postcode. There are three midweek motorcycle maintenance group meeting in your postcode. There's one on Monday, there's one on Wednesday. You could join one of those, and if you went along there, then you could talk about oil, or revs, or gears, or whatever you guys are into. Really? Yeah. And you might think, well, Adrian, why are you saying this? I'm saying this because, guys, we started our church with 20 people in central London. In the first five years, we led 197 people to Christ. And in those five years, we baptized 165. And a lot of that started with small groups just saying, hey, what do you enjoy doing? What do you enjoy doing? You can share the gospel in your world, and you can have the time of your life while you're doing it. And you may look at this and think, leisure time, Adrian, the fact is I'm the busiest I've ever been in my entire life. I'd be prepared to bet that most people here would say, right now, I'm the busiest that I've ever been in my entire life. I would say that right now I'm the busiest that I've ever been in my entire life. I've got these four kids. I've um, been serving as an elder in a very busy, fast-growing church in central London. Uh, I also have a wife. And I, I would say I'm the busiest that I've been in my entire life. But I think all of us, if we really wanted to, if we really wanted to, we could find at least one evening a month. So I just want to ask you, if you could find one evening a month, what would you do with that one evening a month. Now, uh, I have a friend uh, who's a Nigerian civil engineer, and his name is Onde Ogogobi. And if Onde were here this morning, and I said, Onde, why don't you just tell the good people here in City Church Sheffield how you became a Christian? Onde would say, well, you know, the, uh, the fact is it all began with badminton, he'd say. You see, Onde went down the leisure center with his girlfriend to play badminton against, you know, whoever was there. During the game... Onde notices that the couple that they're playing against during the game, he notices the other couple don't swear during the game. Onde thinks, there's quite a lot of scope for swearing in badminton. This is a bit bizarre. So he, at the end of the game, he says to this couple, he says, look, I know you think this is a bit of a weird question, but I just noticed during the game you didn't swear. And this couple say, well, um, yeah, okay, it's a fair cop. Um, yeah, actually, we're Christians, and yeah, I suppose that's probably true. We don't swear. This couple invite Onde to the New Frontiers regional celebration. So it's not even an evangelistic event. In the worship, during the sung worship with the words up on the screen, Onde is slain in the spirit, which means that he kind of falls down on the floor during the sung worship looking at the words on the screen, and he is converted on the carpet during the worship. So... He would be an example of somebody who went up the scale very quickly. 
Because all he knows is that Christians don't swear and that they play badminton. <laughs> which is not very much to go on. Next section, those we work with. Folks, I continually meet Christians who feel condemned that they don't witness on the job more than they do. Folks, in my last job, I worked as a television presenter in a 24-hour newsroom. Folks, if I had tried to communicate the gospel at work while we were on air, if I'd gone round merrily to my colleagues in the newsroom trying to witness them while they're writing copy, I would not have been doing my job very well. Nor, incidentally, through the medium of my work, which in my case was broadcasting sports news, would it actually have been appropriate for me to communicate the gospel in my world, though I very easily could have done. For example, one of the things I used to do is I used to read the classified football results. And it was so, I could easily have said something like this. Barclays Premiership, Arsenal 1, Manchester United 0. Chelsea 2, West Ham United 0. Everton won, but God so loved the world that he gave his only son that if any of you listening to the football results this afternoon should believe in him, you will not perish, but you can have eternal life. I could have said. And if I'd said that, I could have gone to the church prayer meeting the following night, and I could have said I was pretty radical at work yesterday. And they could have said, well, what do you mean? I could have said, well, guess which verse I managed to slip into the classified football results. And they could have said, well, we, we don't know. Which, which verse was it? I could have said, John 3, 16. I could have said, they could have said, oh, wow, you're so radical, they could have said. But you know what? If I'd done that, I would have got the sack. Because I wasn't being employed to do that. Folks, what we're doing at work, my ambition actually at work was one thing. I wanted my boss and everyone in my department to think that I was a team player. I wanted everyone in my department to think, Adrian Holloway, he pulls for the team. His stuff always makes air. I wanted them to think, by the way that I did my job, that I'm pulling for the team. Folks, what we're doing at work is we are trying to build up such a big account in the bank of credibility by the way that we do our job, so that when sometime some sort of work-related social occasion comes round, and I don't know, maybe it's somebody in the office is getting married, and it's, you know, the, the photos are taking ages and just standing around chatting, or maybe it's somebody's leaving do, or some other social occasion related to your work, and then they say, hey, what are you doing this weekend? And of course, in your answer, you mention church, you're starting from a position of strength. And they actually are saying, okay, now we've actually got some time, nobody else is listening, and it's just you and me, what, what is it with you? What, what, what do you mean, church? Tell me, what, what's, what's the story? Because you built up such a big account in the bank of credibility that actually favorably disposed towards you because of the way that you've been doing your job. Folks, I believe that's what we're called to do at work. Final thing this morning is other people who we come into contact with, for example, neighbors. Here's the good news. In our culture, especially in the north of England, it is still considered socially acceptable whenever you move house, if you do move house, to knock on a few neighbors' doors and you can just say, Hi, I'm your new neighbor. Um, we were just thinking we were going to have a, maybe a housewarming barbecue. Just wondered if you'd like to come. No one will take offense at that. No one will say, and what gives you the right to impose your free food upon me? What gives you the right to merrily stroll next door? No, they won't say that. Folks, how do I know they won't be offended by the invitation? Because 10 years ago when we moved to Birmingham, we knocked on all the neighbors' doors. When we actually did the barbecue, we had 100 people in our back garden. And I want to encourage you, when you do the housewarming barbecue, um, don't feel obliged to preach at the barbecue. Because I know it's tempting, isn't it? You want to preach at the barbecue. Of course you want to preach at the barbecue. You've been prayer walking the garden with your wife, claiming the ground for Jesus. <laughs> claiming, I'm claiming this turf now for you, Lord. And then the event comes, 
and you invite your neighbors, they're all there in your garden, eating your food that's been blessed by your prayers. They're eating your burgers, your mustard, and God is blessing the event. The sun is shining, and you've just got this vision every night. You've been going to bed with your wife with this vision in your mind of all your neighbors kind of you know, coming to faith in Christ. And you, of course you want to stand up, maybe get on a chair and say, um, now, um, just to listen to a little something I want to say, and just, you go into your little gospel preach, and maybe you've got a, a visual aid with a bun and some burgers, and you're thinking of how you're going to move towards the appeal, and then you say, now, if you believe what I'm saying, come to the grill, come to the grill, come forward, and every night, you go to bed with your wife, and you've got this vision of all your neighbors kneeling on your patio in repentance while holding their buns, and I want to say, you can preach at the barbecue, but you don't have to. It's, it's, it's like an option. And I was happy not to preach at the barbecue. You know, I was happy just to make friends with these people. And someone may say, yeah, but where are those 100 people now? Where are they today? Well, here's the truth. Of the 100 people, four came on the Church Alpha course. Of the four, one became a Christian. But the truth is this. We moved to London seven years ago. And there's this guy called Chris. He lives five doors down from me on the right-hand side. And uh, we did the same thing, knocked on the neighbor's doors, invited them to a housewarming barbecue. Chris goes to me, he says, Adrian, can I just tell you why I'm coming to your barbecue? I said, well, sure, Chris. He said, because I've lived in this road for 25 years. No one has ever done what you're doing. And I'm thinking, oh, Chris, mate, all it is is I'm just going down Fulham Pass Road. I'm just going to buy some burgers, but I'm not sure about the mustard. Maybe definitely ketchup, maybe mustard. No, I've lived in this road for 25 years. No one in the field of human history has ever done what you're doing. And I just, when I hear that, I just think about that little verse that's tucked away in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 17. And Paul is preaching to the Athenians, and he says that God has determined the exact times and places where people should live. And that he has done this. He set the whole thing up to make us a bridge to help them receive Christ. And I read that and I think, wow, my next door neighbor is supposed to be living next door to me. Folks, let me just tell you a quick story about our next door neighbor. And our next door neighbor, let me, I'll just change her name because she happens to be a barrister in the high court of the Old Bailey. And so I'll change her name to Fiona. And this is a, a funny thing that happened to her. Um, one morning, um, she's going out of the front door, and she's got these two huge legal drag bags. The bags are about yay high, and the, the, hand, the handle's actually almost as big as her. And she goes down the road. It's a very spectacular sight. You see her wheeling the case notes down, the, down the, 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 the road to the bus stop in the morning. Anyway, one morning, Fiona comes out of the front door, and she gets to the front door. She gets just beyond the... She leaves the bags on the pavement. She realizes she's forgotten something. She goes back into the house. She gets whatever it is, her keys or whatever it is she's forgotten. She's only away from the bags for maybe 30 seconds. But you guessed it. By the time she comes back to the, to the pavement, the bags have gone. <gasps> and as you can imagine, she is in a complete panic. She's in a complete tizwas. The defense case for a live trial at the Old Bailey has just disappeared. And she's in a panic, and she's thinking, what am I going to do? And so she's still got her handbag. She finds a mobile phone. She's trying to find a mobile phone in her handbag. She's going to phone the police. You know, this is, this is a serious matter. The defense case is gone. And so she just rings on next door, which is our house, number 23. And I wasn't home for this, but she rings on the door. My wife, Julia, comes to the door. Oh, Julia, Julia. I've lost my bags. My bags have been stolen. Have you seen my bags? And she's in a real panic. And Julia's like, oh, Fiona, I'm so sorry. I've been up in the children's bedroom. I, I have no idea where your bags are. And so she's trying to find a mobile phone. And Julia just wanders out into the street. And she's standing on the pavement outside our house. And she's just praying. This is not out loud. Just praying in her mind, Lord, where are Fiona's bags? And she feels God say, look at the top of the street. So she looks at the top of the street. Now, our road's just a typical London um, terraced houses all the way up, all the way down, straight road, main road at the top of the street. She looks at the top of the street. She feels God say, can you see that van? So she looks at the top, right up at the very top of the street, there's what looks like a van. And she feels God say, they're in the back of that van. The bags are in the back of the van. So Judy just starts walking up the road. Now, I have to say, if this had been me, after the first couple of steps, I would have thought, nah. 
they're not going to be in the back of the van. But Judy's a much better Christian than me. So she walks all the way to the top of the street. She gets all the way to the top of the street. When she gets to the top of the street, um, lo and behold, there is a bloke sitting in the cabin of the van. And so Judy knocks on the window. And the bloke sort of thinks, what's going on? It sees that, you know, some woman's there. So he winds down his window. And Judy's like this. Have you got two bags in the back of your van that don't belong to you? And the bloke goes, oh no, he says. I knew he shouldn't have nicked them. And Judy says, well, they don't belong to you. They belong to my friend. I think you should hand them back. He says, oh no, he says, I knew he shouldn't have nicked them. So he gets out the van and he walks round the back to the double doors. And he opens up the double doors. There are the bags. He gets the bags down out the van. At this point, his mate, who was the one who had actually stolen the bags, he's been round to the corner shop. He comes back from the corner shop, and he actually says out loud, Oh no, we've been discovered, he says. <laughs> oh no, we've been discovered, he says. Um, he says, they looked important. We saw them there on the pavement. They looked important. We thought we'd nick them, put them in the back of the van, find out later what was in them, you know, like you do, he says. So Judy says, well, I think you should return them to my friend. So, so they, anyway, she gets these bags, and they're walking back down the street. And, and so Judy's walking back with these two guys, and they're pulling the drag bags back down the street. Fiona, by this stage, has found her phone. She's on the phone to the police. And she looks up to see this sight of her next-door neighbor, and these two men that she'd never seen before dragging her bag. She's like, hang on. She can't take it all in. Anyway, so the guys come all the way back down. At this point, as they come back down to, the, to our house, the police arrive... And they put the two blokes in the back of the squad car. They drive off, and Fiona is now reunited with her precious bags. And as you can imagine, there is just one question that Fiona really wants to ask. And she says, Judy, the one thing I don't get is, how did you know? How did you know that the bags were all the way at the top of the street in the back of the van? And Judy said, well, Fiona, I think God told me. Well, as you can imagine, Fiona is now higher up the scale than she was. Folks, I, I, just one, one last thing I must draw to a close here. Um, every stage of life, whatever stage of life you're at, there are opportunities that are unique to your stage of life that don't come around at other stages of life. The stage of life we are in is we happen to have uh, these four children, so quite a lot of our life revolves around the school gate and the other mums and dads who pick up the kids. And the other day, I'm driving along in the car just with my wife, Julia, and she says to me, she mentions this one mum that we both know quite well from the school. And she says, oh, so-and-so comes up to me at the end of school today. And guess what she said? I said, I don't know what she say. She said, um, she said oh, she said, Julia, I hear, well, I know, I hear that you know, you've been talking to some of the other mums and helping them. Julia says, yeah. She said, well, Julia, I think I need a session. She says, in fact, Julia, I think I need lots of sessions. And listen, Julia, I'm willing to pay. So I'm listening to this. I'm talking to my wife in the car. She's telling me this story. And I'm saying, have I got this right? Are you telling me that one of the mums from school is offering to pay you to witness to her? <laughs> and she said, yeah. I said, that is fantastic. <laughs> I said, how much are you going to charge? As far as I'm concerned, that's got to be more than the minimum wage, wouldn't you agree? <laughs> anyway, um, could the band just come up for a second? And uh, I'm just going to conclude, then I think we'll pray, and then maybe we'll sing together. Let me just finish by saying this. I know this will sound ridiculous, but the truth is that in 2014, three years' time, uh, the next Football World Cup will be taking place in Brazil. And at the moment, this sounds ridiculous, but trust me, in three years' time, everyone in England will think that we are going to win the World Cup. Even though we all know in our hearts that probably we're not, probably we will be knocked out on penalties by Germany. We all know that. But I just want to say this. If in three years' time England do lift the World Cup, heaven will be silent. Because Jesus said in Luke 15, verse 7, that the angels rejoice whenever one lost person comes back to God. So, England lift the World Cup in 2014, heaven is silent, but when the next person, through the life and witness of this church, comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ, all heaven will erupt. Do you believe it? That's what Jesus said. Should we stand together? Let's pray.